Hey everybody, welcome to the Patty G Show. I'm your host, Patty G. We are out here at the beautiful Building 5 restaurant in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I have Rob, the owner and founder of Go Cajun Navy. We are super excited to learn about what they're doing, learn about the impact they've had on a national and local level, and really get down to what it is they do and how they're able to better serve communities in and around the area. Before we get to that, I want to give a big, wonderful shout out and thank you to the amazing sponsors that make this show possible each and every week. Falaya Real Estate, Horizon Financial Group, Mercedes-Benz of Baton Rouge, Lakeman's Health Center, Building 5 as our location sponsor, and absolutely you know that this lovely outfit is brought to you by McClavey Limited. Make sure to mention all of them next time you go. Tell them that the Patty G Show sent you and they're going to take good, good care of you. So without further ado, Rob, welcome to the show. Awesome. Great to be here. I'm super excited to hear about your journey, what y'all have done so far, where you've kind of come up with this, how you got started, and basically everything in between. So for those that may not be aware of who you are, who are you and what do you do? Wow, that's a loaded question. I, um, you know, I'm, I'm a systems guy. I'm a programmer. Um, man, I, I, I graduated high school in 1987, so I'm 53 and I graduated in Lafayette. Um, I went to work actually for a company called Ryan Steakhouse. Um, there were three Ryans here in Baton Rouge. Long story short, I worked for them for seven years, started waiting tables, worked my way up through the company, became general manager of my own Ryans here in Baton Rouge at age 24 over on uh, Perkins Perkins Road. That's impressive. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's quick too. Tell you what, man. You know, I didn't go to college. I went for one semester and realized it wasn't for me, um, So, I, but I got my my stripes uh, of life at the school of hard knocks by working for a restaurant for seven years. You know, you, I worked for them on a corporate level. I became a corporate trainer for them after I left in Lafayette. They asked me to go into management. I turned 21 in Ryan's management training. Um, I thought it was a big deal because I'd worked for them <laughs> as a, as a corporate trainer, like traveling around and helping to train new employees. So I, I showed up here in Baton Rouge as a fourth, um, at fourth level manager now, kind of, you know, kind of demoted from corporate trainer to fourth manager. There were hundreds of fourth managers in the company at the time. And um, the rest of the managers in, here in Baton Rouge that I worked with didn't care that I worked on a corporate level. Like they, they handed me my, my humility in packets <laughs> in droves. So, um, but I just put my head down and worked and kept my mouth shut and brought value every, every minute I had and got promoted to third and then got promoted to second. And I remember sitting with my area supervisor. He said, hey, Rob, you want to run this restaurant? I'm like, what do you mean run it? I'll run it. I'm, you know, I'm the second guy. He said, no, I want you to be number one here. I was 24. And um, okay. I just had my son. Um, I was kind of newly married, I guess. And, um, but that was pretty cool. And he, I was just like, okay, I'll take it. He was like, man, you should be more excited than that. <laughs> That's kind Aren't of my you personality. eager, Rob? Come he was on, like, man. Don't you want to stand up and go waka waka or something? You know, <laughs> I don't know. But um, no, so I did that. Um, but I ended up. This is '94, '95. Transitioned actually. You know, in high school, I brought up high school to say I did. I took programming in high school. Um, and you know you had floppy disks. This was 1980. I was about to say, what is what is the comparison between man '86 no and now? Man. <laughs> they didn't have the internet back then, but um, you know I, I didn't see myself as a programmer. They did really well um, in software in high school. You know this little computer class, and um, but uh, it was save your revenge of the nerds came out, and I was like, I'm not going to wear a pocket protector in high waters my whole life. No, I don't think that's for me. But um, 95, the internet came out, and so I'm working at Ryan's and got online and like, what is this all about? And started 
Netscape Navigator, went to view source on the HTML pages, and I was just like, wow, this is great. I wanted to know what it was all about. Started teaching myself to write code. And um, within three years, I had transitioned from restaurant, basically, to um, software. Got a job with a startup in Houston in 98. And um, we were acquired by Realtor.com in 2001. Yeah. That's so, pretty big. Uh, pretty cool. Do you have any equity in that company? I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so you're happy, real happy about that, I'm sure. I am. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, I, you know, I just, I kept doing it. And, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an engineer, so it's really what I do. So that was almost 30 years ago that I started doing that. And so I build business systems. I look at how businesses work. And my job now, I mean, I'm a programmer. I love to write code. I could, st- I could stick my head in a computer and write code for hours and just not even care. Like, I love it because you're creating something, and it's powerful. You can sit anywhere in the world with a laptop and build a business right there on your laptop. How cool is that? So writing code is the universal language. I know they say AI is like eliminated the jobs for programmers. I don't know, baby. But um, somebody's got to make the AI work, too. So learn that, right? right. But, um, yeah, so... Um, you know, the, the internet became what I really became passionate about. I learned to use Photoshop. I always say I hacked into Photoshop in 1996 because I couldn't afford it. Did now, you really? I did. <laughs> Wait, no way. I, I don't know how I figured this out, but you could go download this. It was called Serial.exe, okay. executable, and run it on your computer, and then open Photoshop, and it'll drop the key into, your, into the Photoshop and make it work. I'm assuming they fix that now. Oh, yeah. It doesn't work like that anymore. (laughs) But, I mean, I was always keeping my fingers crossed that it didn't crash my computer with, like, a virus. It may have put a virus on there. I don't know. That was a long time ago. But, you know, I started using Photoshop and creating logos and designing websites. This is what I started doing and had to teach myself eventually to be a coder. Website development and coding are very different. Right. But I've done it all. I'm a full-stack guy, a Microsoft certified database administrator, Microsoft certified solution developer, Microsoft um, systems engineer, meaning all the networking and how does Active Directory work and how do you add users to networks and set up domains and things like that. So I'm an engineer. I'm a software guy. I look, I, I, just at heart. Okay. So, but before I was a programmer, I was a people person. <laughs> right. <laughs> Worked right. for restaurant industry. That, that's what I was about to get at. So, I mean, okay, there's so much to unpack here. But with the restaurant industry, I feel like that's not pushed enough as a first job. Like, yeah. even if you're going to be an entrepreneur, if you're going to do anything, restaurant experience gives you that hands-on, like, pushing you to deal with people every day and resolve issues that come up on the spot. You have to think on your feet. You have to remember whether it's specials, their order, whatever it is. There's so much that goes into working in a restaurant from bussing tables to cleaning the dishes to being a server. That interaction is huge. I was in the restaurant industry not nearly as long as you, maybe only two or three years. But Mm -hmm. still, within those two or three years, you learn so, so much. And the barrier to entry is almost nothing. Yeah, exactly. If you you get two hands and... You, they'll hire you. You don't have to have feet. They'll hire you. <laughs> yeah. You got to have hands. Right. You got to um, carry the trays. You do. <laughs> but yeah, the restaurant industry is just a great way to get into the world and find out what it's about and what you're capable of as a person to how much pressure can you handle. Go in the restaurant industry and see if it can crack you or not. Right. Yeah. And so you went from being a people person, interacting with them every day to then sitting behind a computer, not interacting with people what was that shift like um at the time the shift wasn't hard 
Um, you know, I think with, uh, I became a consultant where I was able to work remotely, you know, building systems pretty much on my own. That became difficult once I kind of cycled out of, because in, in the software industry, in the, in the early days especially, you had to work with people and, you know, and I, I was analyzing how systems work. That requires people, but at some point it doesn't. And, it, you know, it's, um, I think you miss it till you don't, I guess. You know, software doesn't require you to interact with people when you're when you're writing code for the most part. Not in not in like you would in a, in the service type business. But um, I, uh, I uh, there was a point where I'm like I'm, I'm kind of need something else. Yeah, right. Yeah. So then, where was the next step from you for there? Uh, you know, it was honestly it was I think having a family and my son and you know I coached his soccer team for ten years and he's an Eagle Scout and so you know. Until he left, I think I was good. But once he grew up, he's 27 now. Once he grew up and left the house, it's like, okay, now, like, what am I going to do with my time um, that isn't sitting behind a, a laptop? And that was a struggle. It really was, I'll admit. It was 2014, 2015, and 2016. Um, some big life changes for me. I lived in Shreveport at the time and then ended up moving to Baton Rouge in 2014 And um, after he graduated high school. And um, I wasn't sure. Well, what brought you here from Shreveport? My my former wife um, got a job at LSU. She's at the vet school. Okay. Um, so she was in the LSU system for her whole life, basically. And so we came here just for her. And then I was in software. I could work anywhere. And yeah. So that's been a kind of our thing. Like, I can live wherever. And so I did. But when my son moved out, my life you know, was an empty nest, I guess, a little bit. Um, what are you going to do? And then I moved to a new city. And I was still had a contract with a company in Shreveport that I worked remotely for. Um and I did that for two and a half years. And then this flooding happened in 2016. Yes. And it it was it was very much a... I mean, look back now, it was completely life-changing. But at the moment, I'm like, eh, this is something I might want to help with. So, like, what did you... Flooding of 16 gets here. What are your initial thoughts? Uh, you know, here, we live in Louisiana. We hear localized flooding all the time. I'm like, is my house going to flood? Of course, localized flooding means, well, I'm going to go back to sleep. <laughs> not too worried about it. <laughs> but then you wake up in the morning. driving to work. Yeah, well, you wake up in the morning and you turn on the news or you look at internet and Facebook and you see people being rescued by helicopters and they're opening shelters at the, you know, the um, Celtic Studios. And it was like, okay, this is a big deal. There's serious flooding in the area. And I was, first thought was my house. Was it going to flood? And um, if it was, there was nothing I could do, but I was watching the water, and I remember sitting on my front porch, and my dog was jumping off the porch into the water and fetching the ball and bringing it back, you know, and all. So you were close to it. Oh, yeah. I lived in Riverbend. Um, oh. Yeah, Riverbend. So yeah. we didn't flood. The house didn't flood. But I got in my truck, and I started driving around just to see what was going on. I mean, I was, I was sightseeing a little bit. I remember driving down... Um, um, Anyway, driving out of River Bend, I can't remember the road right now, but there's Burns, some uh, Burnside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some uh, a, a table set up and some people standing in the water with the table playing beer pong, <laughs> like on the side of the road. I was like, <laughs> look at that. And uh, that was kind of the first time I went live too. I was like, okay, I'll go live on Facebook and show this to my friends. Right, right. Um, I this is on your personal page. You've on got nothing. Page. Nothing's built. Nothing's established at this point. I didn't even know about the Cajun Navy. Gotcha. So. um... I was driving around. I drove down Burbank and saw some flooding in homes and stuff. I'm like, okay, this is pretty bad. So I got on, back on, and I got on Facebook, and I was looking, and I scrolling through some feed or whatever, and I saw this term Cajun Navy, and I saw a Facebook group set up that was called the Cajun Navy. 
And I said, that's interesting. I, I read some posts and I went ahead and joined it. And I'm reading through what I couldn't believe was basically um, people ple- pleading for help um, in this Facebook group where individuals had heard of the Cajun Navy and they were calling 911. They were reaching out to everybody they could for assistance. Um, right. They were stranded in their homes and they were making these group posts to be rescued. And I could see comments and there were people trying to help them and it was just like everybody, it was all over the place. And I put on my kind of my systems hat at the time and said, oh, we need to collect these and put them in a database and then organize around doing these rescues. And so I messaged the group administrator um, and said, hey, you know, I, I can help with this if you'd like some help. I could tell she was a little frazzled and a lot, over her A head. lot was flooding in, yeah. She didn't know what to do with it. And um, I, I knew that there were guys in boats and that they had a Zello app, a walkie-talkie app on their phone. And that, okay, that's all you need then. We can tell them, if we can organize this, we can tell them to go do these rescues or whatever it was, find a dog or deliver food and water to a stranded neighborhood because the water is too high for cars to get in. And so um, that's what I, this person made me an administrator of the group on the spot. And I was like, okay. So that's kind of where it started. <laughs> now I'm in. Now I'm in. Right. And, you know, think of it this way. Police and fire departments don't just drive around looking for crime. Like, in the same way that boaters, if, if they did that, think of how inefficient they would be. Like looking for, just looking for crime. Like that's not how it works. Somebody calls that there's a crime. And then a dispatcher dispatches a police officer or a fire, you know, a fire truck to go help. That's what I did. I said, okay, if you have a boat, get on this walkie-talkie channel. And I posted this in the group. I said, here's the walkie-talkie channel. Let's get your name into our database. And I want somebody else to take all these requests and put them into the database. And then I want other people to connect the boater to the request and so we did this through the walkie-talkie channel so if somebody you know stranded on their kitchen table and they needed to be rescued we could find a boater to go and perform that rescue and that made us hyper efficient we just went to specific um things to do we knew exactly what we were doing yeah and you had the data i'm sure to know where they were yeah like so whenever you started organizing this database i think of it as a CPA in Excel format, just mm-hmm. having the, the lines and the names, but where is it actually geographically set up with like a, a map of the city or a map of the state where you could see, okay, we've got, I mean, obviously you're not tracking them and watching them move on a map, but like, yeah. okay, we've got calls for help here and this is zip code on this street, these houses, these are the dress. I mean, I'm sure you could use Google Maps and pinpoint exactly where these folks are. That's exactly what we did. Okay. We used Google Maps and we started putting the addresses so that we could see them on the map. And then we had the boaters download a GPS app. And so we would look for a boater nearest to where the uh, request was coming from and, and then dispatch that boater to go help them. So you were kind of acting like, as like a 911 dispatch exactly call. Exactly what we did. And that's still what we do today. Okay. Just the efficiency of it is incredible. You know, people think, well, all these guys put their boats in the water and they went and helped people. If those guys were successful, they were being told what to do by us. Now, you know, in a neighborhood, you wake up at 3 in the morning and nobody's expecting it and you got 600 homes and everybody needs to be helped. That's one thing. Like, you're running people in and out. That's just an efficiency standpoint of how many people can you carry in your boat to get out and go yeah. back. Yeah, and that happened. Yeah. But there were other times where people didn't, one house flooded and none of the others did and that person needed help. Or 
you know, we'd deliver food or water or, or go find a lost pet or, you know, even go and find lost um, livestock, you know, and get them to safety. And so boats were definitely needed for specific jobs as well as the broad, the broad jobs. And we really just focused in on the specific jobs. Yeah. So then taking that 16 flood happens, this, I mean, I remember going and helping sandbag people's homes. I was, I, I at the time, am a high schooler. No, actually I was in college, but I had a, a lifted Jeep. And so I was driving people from okay. their house and going through, there was a neighborhood on Nicholson Drive by the Harbor, St. Gabriel Hardware Store okay. that got impacted from the late, from the, uh, was it Bayou Manchac? Yeah. Back there. And so my brother-in-law up there, so I had to go check on his house. And as I'm there, people are walking back to their house saying, our, our house isn't flooded because it's raised, but we had to get our cars out. I said, I'll take you back. And yeah. so like driving back through that, I mean, we're driving through two feet of water at this point. My mm-hmm. area, this is a serious flooding that's happening in this neighborhood. And people are, I'm like going as slow as I can to not push any wake into these people's houses. Cause as soon as I go, I mean, it's going to blow awake everywhere. But going through and seeing all of that firsthand was, was powerful with what these people are going through. Meanwhile, my house is high and dry. Yeah. You know, it's like we were all going through something, but others were more impacted by others. So that was lasting for maybe a, a week or two, right? I mean, yep, there's a couple of weeks. Yeah. So, yeah. so then what kind of happened from there for the organization, I guess? I mean, this is a Facebook page at this point. Yeah. How, how do we get it to where you are now working all across the Gulf South and all across the nation, really? Well, if you think about what happened with social media is crowdsourced. Yeah. We crowdsourced rescues. And it was really cool. It's kind of the Internet levels of playing field. You always hear that for, you know, in, individuals can compete with big established organizations. And so we really did that here. We, we crowdsourced it. But... You know, when all of the water went down and all those boaters went home, we were left with 100,000 structures, homes that were flooded and needed to be cleaned up. And so in the same way we crowdsourced the rescue, I was like, well, shouldn't we be doing the same thing? Because I was, remember, I was behind the scenes and all I was doing was solving a problem. Oh, these people need to be rescued. Why not solve the problem? Oh, these homes need to be cleaned out. In the same way where we told stories and we recruited people to go and help clean up homes and help individuals recover um, and get out of that crisis that they were in. And, you know, when you have 100,000 homes, I'm a, I'm a programmer, I'm a math guy. And so I started doing the math. It, I estimated it, took, it would take 30 people from the time that they start first start working on that home to the time that the individual can move back in, 30 sets of hands to get back into that home, whether it's contractors or people cleaning up or insurance agents or whoever. But... That's 30? 30. And when you have 100,000 homes, that's, what is that? That's 3 million people, 3 million sets of hands. And I was like, okay, this is where well, we need a lot of volunteers. It's a volunteer movement. That's really what we needed. And it's just as simple as the more people that show up, the faster the job gets done. And so I mean, okay, let's build some kind of volunteer movement. And I did. I worked on that for about a year. Um, just helping people and I had my full-time job at the same time and it was a lot it was really it was very stressful um, I ended up you know actually um, having some I ended up getting a divorce out of it because it was but it was life-changing for me and it was a it was in a it was in a good way but the um, you know just about the time I'm starting to wind down a year later in August 2017 Hurricane Harvey happened and as soon as I started hearing, oh, there's going to be a Category 4 or 5 that hits Texas, I'm like, 
I'm done. Like I'm not going to get involved anymore. <laughs> now, in 2016, I'd been I had I had kind of a burden. So in 2016, I was in my office right after the flooding, maybe two weeks in, and I got a phone call that said, "Hey, Rob, um, we're going to be coming over to take your headshot for uh, Louisianian of the Year." Yeah, and that was my reaction. I yeah. said, well, "That was the first time I heard about this. What are you like, talking I never, about?" I didn't even know we had it. Yeah, nobody thing called, called me and Louisiana told me. And <laughs> it's good. I'm the, like, the last one to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's like six or seven people that okay. year. Um, Coach Ed Orgeron was one. Um, CC Lockwood, the photographer, was another. Yeah. Um, and myself, and then four, three other people. So it was pretty cool. Okay. Um, but yeah, so I had, but I had this thing now, like 2017, Texas is gonna get hit. I was Louisiana of the year for helping people. I'm like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And you got to, Rob. I know. I did. You got to. You're, 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 you're out there. You're publicized yeah. as this guy for helping people. In people time were calling me saying, yeah. what are you doing? Are you guys going to help? What's going to happen? I'm like, Ugh. okay. So, but the day that um, there was some, there was some, there's other Cajun Navy groups that exist um, that none of us work together. Even back then we didn't. Um, I've always worked with everybody. Um, you know, in April 2017, I brought two other groups in to help us rebuild the home for Edda Dodrill, um, who was lived in Maripaw, um, an elderly lady that had zero help. You know, nine months later, she was living in a home with no hot water, um, and her home had been cleaned out as far as the walls, but she was still living in it without insulation, and it was cold. It was like January when I found her. I brought groups together to help. Um, we rebuilt her home, and then three days later, I found her passed away in it. So I'm having these experiences, yeah, and in so when 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 Texas got hit by Rockport, I said, okay, I'm gonna create a new page. I just created a brand new page, and I called the Texas Navy. And within a week, that page starting with nothing had thirty thousand people on it, and they were all from Texas. And they'd heard of the Cajun Navy, but now they had the Texas Navy. I wanted to be a rally cry for Texans. Um, and, and so, and these are just pages. We've got no legal documents, no organizations. No, it's just a Facebook. Just page. a Facebook. Page. No, I did have a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. I mean, I created our nonprofit, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and within a few days of starting to help. Which the technical name is? Technical name is Cajun Relief Foundation. That's the original founding. I didn't want to be Cajun Navy because there were other guys using Cajun Navy, and I'm like I don't know them. And then in the end, Cajun Navy is such a strong term. But I'll, I'll tell you how I got back to that. Yeah, so, yeah. so Texas. Um, I created Texas Navy. Yeah. To 30,000 people um, helping, and we did what we did. And here we performed rescues, and we did over 4,000 rescues. And I'll tell you today, Houston and Texas are hands down our biggest supporters. Um, they see what we do the most because that became the backbone of our page. Um, and but I got a you know, we did Harvey and rescues and everything else, and then Irma hit and we went to Florida. Two weeks after Harvey, we went to Florida and started helping in Florida, and we helped there through the end of the year, actually. So about two and a half months in Florida. And, um, but I got a call probably in 2018 because 2017 was when August, August 2017 is when Harvey hit. And then in early 2018, I got a call from the Texas Navy that said, Hey, you can't use that name. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, I didn't know that. From and the so actual state Navy? It was, a, there was, Texas had a Texas Navy at one time. Gotcha. It was a state, it was its own country and they had their own Navy. <clears throat> and so, you know, all these guys get together and they do boat, I don't know what they do, but they, they have an association called the Texas Navy. And so we tried to actually work it out. We could work together and we just didn't. So I'm like, I'll just change it. So I just changed it to back to Cajun Navy. And that's how okay. our current page became known 
Uh, I changed it to Cajun Navy Ground Force. That's our page name, Cajun Navy Ground Force, because we really are a ground force. Once, I mean, really, there hasn't been any significant boat work since Harvey. Um, there just hasn't been, and that was 2017. That was six years ago. And so yeah. it's, you know, in my, my theory early on was that you can't really build a sustainable nonprofit equitably and be honest with the community around boat rescue. It's just not possible. There's just not enough of a need for it. I mean, I wanted to be engaged every day in what I'm doing. And what am I going to engage with today around boat rescue? Well, <laughs> it's just not there. I could train. You can only train so much. Well, And that also, to your point, if you've got something that's a cyclical nonprofit, you have to almost rebuild your name every year. Yeah. You you have to reaffiliate with your following if you're using social media in the way that y'all are to have the impact that you have. You have to rebuild that attention every single year because people lose sight of it. You know, they think, yeah. oh, if there's ever flooding, they've got this organization called the Cajun Navy, a bunch of guys from, you know, the Cajun towns bringing their boats and saving people. But that, that was does, that's not eight year years round. ago. Right, right. That was eight years ago. Well, yeah, coming here's up on what's going years. on, yeah, though. Yeah. The, all the other groups, that's pretty much what they do. They, they call themselves Search, SAR, which is mm-hmm. Search and Rescue. And, the, you know, they've gone and gotten training and everything good for them. But they're posting parade photos, and, like, they, they keep their, their public engaged. Um, and every now and then, you know, they'll get involved in a lost person, somebody that's missing or whatever. They'll help do that. But it's not very often. Right. And, you know, that's just – that wasn't the vision I had for what we do because I saw a world's world of world's worth of work in front of us, and that was the aftermath. You know, the flood, these floods happen there three or four days or a couple of weeks or tornado or hurricane happens and it's, you know, a couple of days. But those are life-changing events for people. And I saw an opportunity to get involved in the crisis created in the aftermath and do it in the same way that we crowdsourced the rescue. Let's crowdsource the cleanup. And that's what we do. It's incredibly impactful. I sit around sometimes when we're deployed and I'm like, why are we the only ones here? We don't have that much money. <laughs> yeah. You know, and there's some groups with a lot more money than we have and people in serious distress after these crises. And so, you know, I think um, you, as an organization, you raise most of your funds in the early days when a disaster happens and then you start spending it. And the more money we raise in the early days, the longer we stay. That's not what other orgs do. Other orgs raise a lot of money, and they, they have their, their thing where they stay for a couple of weeks, maybe a month, and then they just go. And there's no, there's no like, well, we raise this much of money so we can stay longer. So that's, that's what we do. Depending on how much money we raise is how long we're going to stay. And my goal is to actually go back in time to other disasters and not just wait for future ones because today um, FEMA has over 460 open natural disasters going back to like 35 years that are not done. These things impact people's lives for their entire life. And some people just never recover. And so my goal is to actually go back in time, once we're big enough and we've raised enough funds, to go back in time and start helping those people too and speed up that process, but using the same tools that we always have, using the internet, storytelling, crowdsourcing it, and encouraging people to come and help. So how do you go about if that you know that being the goal of going back and helping these folks in past tragedies and past disasters how do you build a network or foster a, a need for somebody to be willing to donate to something that happened 35 years ago you know yeah. have, have you started kind of thinking through that 
what I see as a, a roadblock to getting that done is people thinking, I mean, if I'm a donor and I'm 35, I may not even have been alive at the time in which this occurred. Why does that, why does that matter to me? You know, but I think your storytelling is kind of a good way to do it. Exactly what it is storytelling. You know, if we go back, to go back 35 years is an extreme example, but let's go back to tornadoes that hit in um, Oklahoma, you know, 15 years ago, or even Hurricane Katrina here in our own state in 2005. There's still damaged homes and people that have never been able to recover from Hurricane Katrina. There's still lawsuits going on around Hurricane Katrina from homes that weren't built properly or that mold intrusion because the home, you know, had the wrong kind of material in it to withstand future disasters. And so there's a ton of work that goes on after the event. People just forget. They just simply forget. Well, it's because I think maybe, and you probably have a better answer to this than I, but like, I think it's because the the news that we're seeing stops covering it. Yeah. You know, like the most recent one that I'm aware of would be the Mississippi situation where the, where the tornadoes went through and devastated that town. Yeah. It, you don't hear anything about it, but I'm sure people living there are still going through real issues from that disaster. Yeah. We, we were there until almost just about two weeks ago. So that was rolling fork. Um, you know, everybody, you don't know it, but you know, rolling fork. You've heard of it. You know why? Because you heard of the Rolling Stones. And you're like, Rolling Stones, Rolling Fork. What's the connection there? Okay. The Rolling Stones chose their band name from a song by a guy named Muddy Waters, a song called Rolling Stone. And Muddy Waters is from Rolling Fork. So, like, it. I, I go in and look for those stories about towns that make people go, oh, and it creates a connection with you to that town, like moves you a little towards it. I do that for every disaster. I can tell you about Lake Charles. Lake Charles is my hometown. The founder of Yahoo is from Lake Charles. Really? You didn't know that, did you? His <laughs> name is David Philo. Look it up. Okay, yeah. His had, brother is an attorney there, Tom Philo. Yeah, I had no idea yeah. that the founder of Yahoo was from Lake Charles. Okay. Yep. Um, the world's most foremost surgeon in human history, a guy named Michael DeBakey, is from Lake Charles. He's considered by the medical profession as the best surgeon to have ever lived. Okay. He's from Lake Charles. And so you just kind of go into these areas of impact, figure out the history and culture behind them and what type of stories you can harvest from it and then use that to get people concerned about the area? Exactly. Exactly. And it's almost like I don't have to because we, you know, our mission is to embed in the most impacted community and stay there and live there and help the individuals in ways that um, nobody else really does. Now, we don't have this big, you know, I have this big, movement of volunteers that I can just say get on the phone and say hey all 6,000 of you come we have like 12 that knows how to move people to come and help and so we are a platform that makes it easy for the American man woman child to volunteer and so we are a platform for volunteerism and you know we show stories and some people we show stories and we start tugging at your heart and some people are going to be able to say aren't going to be able to say no to that and we yeah. get those people and we bring them in and we put them to work. Yeah. We also have a partnership with AmeriCorps. AmeriCorps is a federal government program for youth volunteers where they give up about nine months of their lives to do nothing but volunteer for that entire time. It's highly organized. It's very professional. I just had a call with uh, them today for our last AmeriCorps team to provide feedback on it, on our experience with it. And so we've had six AmeriCorps teams they come and they stay anywhere from four weeks to six weeks and they, they live, we find them housing, they live with us and then we manage their work. So working with AmeriCorps and it's AmeriCorps NCCC, um, National Conservation Corps, 
Um, these are just youth volunteers that come in and we put them to work and then we build on top of what they're doing and, and we that drives a lot more individuals to come in and volunteer with us. So for Rolling Fork, I'll tell the story. So Rolling Fork happened on, I think it was March 24th. It was a Friday night and I'm sitting at the house. I just grilled some steaks and was having a glass of wine. It was a nice Friday night here in Baton Rouge. And um, a weather chaser friend of mine um, named Brandon Clement um, called me and said, hey Rob, turn on AccuWeather. Um, there's some tornadoes hitting Mississippi. And so I turn it on and there's Brandon, this weather chaser, like they're showing his live video from his vehicle on his Brandon, you know, on AccuWeather. He said, um, y'all gonna need to come to Rolling Fork. And I'll call Brandon whenever like something happens, like, hey Brandon, is this something we need to respond to? He's like, nah, this isn't gonna be big enough, you know, for you guys to come. There's other resources coming. He said, Rob, y'all need to come. And now it's 10 p.m. Friday night. Okay. And I'm at my house here in Baton Rouge. And I have a glass of wine and a knife for my filet mignon. I'm like, okay, I'm coming. <laughs> so I set it down and I grabbed my phone and I went live while I'm packing my clothes in my closet and said, hey guys, um, Brandon just called me, you know, I'm going to Rolling Fork. And with 30 minutes, I was on the road. So 1030, I'm on the road driving to Rolling Fork. I stopped over in Jackson. I was just dead. I slept for a minute, but I woke up in time to get pulled into Rolling Fork at 5 a.m., you know, the tornadoes had just happened and, um, 15 people had lost their lives. And, um, wow. yeah. So I pulled into town and there's debris just everywhere. And there was a few, you know, cars moving around, but for the most part, the roads had been cleared. Um, so I could drive on them, but, um, the de- I hadn't, I mean, I, it still haunts me. I'd never seen anything like that. A tornado just coming through and just ripping. And it, this thing was so powerful. It lifted a semi truck and the trailer carried it a quarter of a mile and then dropped it onto a home killing two of the people inside of it wow yeah it was horrific and i pulled in and i'm trying to reach brandon he's there somewhere um i I was never able to get him but i was able to connect to my team and um i drove back to vicksburg about 45 minutes away um and said hey we're gonna need to deploy so we loaded up we had nine trailers um our skid steer um, we had a new food truck and a command trailer, and we brought all of that stuff up there. Within two days, we were set up in Rolling Fork in a parking lot with our program called Safe Camp, Swift Action Force Emergency Camp. It's a it's a MASH-type unit that we set up for our volunteers and for survivors to be able to operate from. And so that was Rolling Fork. And um, within two days, we were there, and we were full-on, and we stayed there six weeks. So... You said a skid steer and some trailers and a command post. What type of gear have y'all acquired over the years to handle these types of disasters? Yeah, great question. Gear is really important, and we we just every year we add, keep adding to it. Um, the first thing I actually acquired was a, an RV. Um, this was during Hurricane Laura, um, really the first big storm that we responded to in this way. Um, uh, we set up in Walmart's parking lot. Uh, for Hurricane Laura, and we, we had brought in chainsaws to start clearing North Lake Charles, Gosport is the town name. And, um, I mean, it was hot. <laughs> it was so hot. <laughs> it's, it's Lake Charles, you Man, know. <laughs> it was August. It was late August. It was hot. We are in a par- black parking lot, and um, people are starting to bring supplies to us to give away. And I, I'm like, I don't want those diapers. I was going to say, like, I don't do want, you have signs, like, donate here or no. anything? People just started bringing it to us, and I'm like, Nah, do we want that? And then it kept coming. It kept water supplies, dog food, this, this, this. And we're it's loading like, in the parking lot. Walmart's closed because it's damaged. 
And I'm like, okay, well, let's just give it away. So I said, hey, we got this stuff. If y'all need it, come on. I'm in the car line. <laughs> Within like two hours, we had a car line going. I'm like, oh, this is cool. So let's keep bringing supplies and we'll keep loading cars. And we had volunteers coming too. If you want to volunteer? Come. And so we went live and did this. And you can go back. It's on our Facebook page. You can go see this today. And, um, but I'm in this parking lot working and it's hot and we, you know, it's almost a medical thing. Like you have like tents, just tents up, no tents up. I mean, you got to. had nothing. I know GMC's got that commercial with the, with the, the office and the bed, the truck, you know, like yeah. what, what are you, what are you doing for that? We had canopies. That was it. Okay. Some canopies. And, um, somebody, I even, I still to this day don't know who delivered it, but somebody delivered a 32 foot, um, gooseneck tra- enclosed trailer to us. It just, somebody just dropped it off for us. They just dropped and it like, off. Let's put all the diapers and stuff in there and the food, perishable food, so if it rains, it doesn't get wet, and um, but leave the water out, you know, started thinking about logistics of supplies, and um, so we, but some, this guy showed up, a volunteer showed up with a, with an RV, and he had the thing out, he's got the air conditioner going in his RV, and I walked to him and said, he was, they were helping in so many ways, he was a super, kind of MacGyver kind of guy, and I right. said, hey man, can I, can I buy that RV from you? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, funny you should ask. I was thinking about selling it. And so he, I bought that RV from him on the spot in the parking lot. Okay. Yeah. So now, now that is y'all's that was our first, command center? That's that's not our command center. It was, okay. I didn't even sleep in it. I didn't sleep in it for almost two years until until Rolling Fork, actually. No, actually, Ida last year in Florida. But, um, yeah, so we just used it for, you know, we needed a place with air conditioning because there was, it was a health thing, really. And the canopy was nice because we could put our, chairs on there when we needed a break but we were organizing volunteers to go into the community and do cleanup and then doing the supply distribution um people were coming back with pets you know turtles we had there's a video actually of all of the animals people brought back you know the volunteers brought back at the end of the day um we we partnered with another nonprofit, a group of mennonites um from the north that had come down also and um we we're still partnered with them They they were just with us in rolling fork again it was incredible. That kind of kicked off the whole thing. And I was thinking about what we did in that parking lot. Um, we stayed in Lake Charles for 10 months. This is my hometown. Um, I actually bought a house there. And Lake Charles was hit by four declared disasters in nine months. Hit Laura. Holy smokes. Six weeks later, Hurricane Delta hit the same path. And then the, the Texas ice storm came down into to, to Lake Charles. You got to be three degrees in Lake Charles and there's a lot of damaged homes because of the two hurricanes and now you have people without roofs and walls tarped up that don't have insulation and it, you don't have insulation in three degrees outside, you're done. And there's a lot of elderly so we started buying heaters and just delivering, we delivered 700 heaters and we have every one of those photos on our Facebook page. You can go see them. Yeah. Um, and then there was a flood in May. So it had four declared disasters. You know, it was like, okay, we're almost done, and then something else happens. And so we stayed 10 months and helped. Um, so we just kept bringing in volunteers to help. That just goes to show, you know, these things happen. And, yeah, you're going to need to do rescue every now and then. Now, don't forget there are trained search and rescue individuals that are called Coast Guard and National Guard and police and sheriff and fire. And, like, let them do their thing. They're good. And when there's a big overflow like we had in Baton Rouge, certainly citizens can step up and help. But you know, this idea that we always have to get in a boat and go and rescue people yeah, but I can tell you what, it's been 10 months helping people tarp roofs and um, clean up debris and find help them find places to live. We um, we were able to purchase trailers and donate those, like RVs, and donate those to individuals who had no other options. Um, I rescued a 91-year-old woman who lived in her own front seat in Lake Charles for two months. Yeah, 
it, it's, you can see it on Facebook Live. It went crazy. It went viral on TikTok. Had 400,000 views. And I wish it, I, when I I walk up and I, we had been told there was this woman living in her car, and that's what we do. Like we're like people come to us. They know we're there, and they we become integrated into the community. They know we're there, and like hey, the Cajun Navy can help her. And so somebody said, hey, there's an elderly woman living in her car, and um, I was like, that's all I need to know. I, Where we, she at? We loaded up. We went. You drive by it. It's kind of surreal. I can still see it driving past her house. And a look, and sure enough, there's a Jeep Patriot sitting in the driveway, and I could see a head sitting in the passenger seat. And so I'm like, this is this is a real deal. So I got my phone, and I went live, and you can see it on my page. And um, I walked up and I said, hey, how are you doing? She said, I'm okay. And um, I said, and how long have you been, been here? She said, I've been here for two months. And I, man, I was like, this is live, talking to this woman, and she's beautiful. She really is. I just about broke down right there. I said, how old are you? And she did this. She kind of shook her finger at me. I said, hey, <laughs> but you're asked. beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you're beautiful. And she said, in April, I'll be 92. And I'm like, oh, man, my heart melted. So I said, we're going to help you. And so I went and I walked around to her house. And um, I pulled back. They had this tarp over their front porch. And I pulled the tarp back. And there was a bucket with uh, a makeshift toilet on her front porch. And that's where she's using the bathroom. Now, we're talking about a middle-class neighborhood in Lake Charles. We're not talking about, like, way out in the sticks where, you know, that's normal. That's not normal. Yeah. And um, her house was destroyed. But, you know, there's dynamics that come into play in every single situation that explains it. And I wanted to know what was going on. Like, why is this woman living in her car? This is not cool. Well, actually, a, a local church was bringing her food every day in her car. And the guy told me, he said, Rob, don't help them. Her, her granddaughter is a meth addict and causes problems in the community. Nobody wants them there. And he said, plus, they're sue happy. And so if you do one thing wrong, they're going to come sue you. I blocked that guy. Yeah. I, I didn't want to deal with Like, are you serious? No. Like, we, it's a, it's a, at the end of the day, it's a 90-year-old woman living in the front seat of her car. Yeah. Like. Exactly right. And, you know, we... Um, that, that's just an example to show that, yeah, everything's not cut and dry. Like, there's always a reason. And you have to get in, roll your sleeves up, open your mind, and solve problems. And when you come in from an, as an outsider, you can do that. If I were an insider, I'm, I don't know, I might not want to help them either. I don't know. I, I don't see myself being that way, though. But I came in as an outsider, saw the problem, and fixed it. We got her into an RV. Her and her, her granddaughter, we cut out of the picture completely. Her daughter was helping her but they were kind of reliant it was just a kind of messed up that just goes to show though that i what i've realized in three and a half years of since laura and 15 disasters is there's a there is a segment of our population that does not get the help that they need and it's it's a humanitarian crisis it's the elderly and here again why and here's why do you have kids I do, yeah. Do they play sports? Uh, he's 18 months, so not he quite yet. He will play sports. <laughs> he's going to have friends, and they're going to come spend the night. You're going to get to know his friend's parents. You have a job. You have coworkers. You probably are in, do other things in the community. You have this show. If your home is damaged, who's going to help you? Your coworkers, your kids, friends, parents, your church, your people that you work with in the community, right? But when we're elderly... 
those networks dissolve. We don't have those. We no longer have those networks of help, and they're kind of isolated and socially isolated a lot of times. And they're not tech savvy. They don't know what to do for help. And so, our mission, after just seeing this time and again, like Miss Miss um, Christine Burke, who's the woman I was telling you about, and Miss Etta, who I found passed away in her home, and John and Victor and probably 50 others just like them that we go and we help in really tremendous ways. Our mission is to protect and stabilize elderly and disabled victims of natural disaster. And we crowdsource it to do it. We bring in good citizens to do it. So that's our mission, is to protect and stabilize elderly and disabled victims. We become their network, is basically what we do. And we, do, we bring in citizens to, to do that. And so within that, is there some type of training that y'all do with them on how to get a hold of y'all, the technology? Is there any component of that? Or is it just kind of helping them get on their feet making sure they're okay and they're kind of moving on to the next no we we become very tightly integrated with them um one of the things that you know we're still a, a small these are problems we've recently uncovered just in the last year like i'd say we've uncovered but we've really honed in on a defined but our we are working on ways to have continuous needs met for these individuals um i've had volunteers bring people home like Chad, uh, Chad Chasson from his dad owns the grouse room in Lafayette. It's one of our volunteers. He brought a woman home for Christmas. Like they just, they connect. And when you connect at that level, like you just become part of the family and we continue to help them months after. And so from the volunteer perspective, you know, volunteers come to us and when we're deployed, we are, we're in the community. And so we have, we make it easy for volunteers to stay with us. We feed them. Um, we make sure that they have training we have morning meetings every morning. Um, we're working on what we call swift intervention training so that we can have um, American citizens ready to go. Most of our volunteers don't come from Louisiana. They're coming from other states, Maine, Washington State, Maine. Arizona. Yep, all around the country volunteers come. Florida, Ohio, all, they come from all around the country. People will buy plane tickets and fly in to, to volunteer with us. So, and do they just reach out to y'all on social media and say, hey, we're trying to come help. Where where do you need us, yeah. et cetera? Yeah. Every disaster has um, the disaster industry. It is an industry, a billion-dollar industry. They call them spontaneous volunteers. These are people who self-deploy. Like, I want to go help. And so they'll get their tools or they'll, get, they'll do a drive of some kind and, you know, get a bunch of supplies and they, they're going to come into the area and deliver them or they're going to bring their time and, and use that time to help. But they kind of have been as frowned upon by the disaster industry because they can put themselves in harm's way or, you know, they're not really that impactful if you just show up and you're just kind of randomly helping people. There's no system in place to make sure you're helping the right people. So what we have become good at is working with those spontaneous volunteers. And so we say, come on, if you want to volunteer, we're going to put you to work. If you stay for one day, most of our volunteers come for a day. And, um, but we, you know, we're there for, we're in Florida for 10 weeks. Um, Hurricane Ian hit on September 27th. We were there till December 12th. And, but those one day volunteers were just like, here's what you do. You know, we, we get as much out of them as we can while they're on the ground with us. But then if they're going to stay, if they're going to spend two days, of a week, or a month, or a lifetime, we'll do a background check. And we'll say, okay, what are you capable of? And we'll find a, a better trade for them, better skill for them to do. Um, we've had over, probably at this point, probably 30,000 people that volunteered with us. Holy smokes. So for Rolling Fork, we had 1,600 volunteers. 
So we had entire churches, businesses would bring their whole team. We have one live video. I still look at it and go, dang, we gave away that many shirts. <laughs> um, there was like 100 volunteers in our morning meeting. And so we take them out in the community and we put them to work. It's truly like a hands-on effort. So it's just, this is the dream, right? To have a volunteer movement of citizens that gets together and helps after natural disasters in an organized way. And we're building the systems to do that. And it's big. It's very big. Yeah, and it's always needed, you know, like how many states have y'all been in at this point within 15 disasters? Where have y'all, where have y'all made an impact? Yeah, so our, the last state we were in was Mississippi. Um, we're actually now a part of Volunteer Mississippi, Mississippi VOAD, and we're on the Unmet Needs Committee for Mississippi, which is like the last stop to get people help. It's very cool to be on that. Um, but Mississippi, Florida, um, Texas, North Carolina, um, can't, uh, Kentucky, um, and then we went to Colorado um, last year um, on December 30th. There was a wildfire that burned down a thousand homes um, just south of Boulder. And we went like, what are a bunch of Cajuns going to do when a thousand homes are burning out? <laughs> you can't put your boat in the water there. Right. And so um, I wasn't sure. I was kind of excited to go. And we got asked to go. And um, so I didn't really know what are we going to do because there's nothing left you know when you have a, a fire that burns down like a whole neighborhood and there's nothing left it's just charred remains it's not like it's weird you don't you don't get a sense that it of what it was before at all and um so and they have basements and so you walk up to the house and you look down it's like 13 feet down and it's just a pile of ashes in the, in the ground and um but in that pile of ashes there's valuables um metals like war metals jewelry um porcelain some people's porcelain is pretty expensive so we we were able to sift through ashes looking for valuables for individuals that were seeking to find those things and we found a purple heart for a veteran that's we found a lot of stuff but that was the coolest thing that that's we found. incredible yeah. yeah so we had to put on tyvek suits um and we got these uh silk screen these uh screen sifters and um, to takes at least three people because you got somebody shoveling into it and then two sifting, and so we took us two days to find the purple heart. We weren't those guys. I would I, those guys wouldn't stop. I said, man, y'all aren't gonna find it. This is about half a day. They said we're not quitting till we find it. So and it was cold, it was snowy, and but they pushed through and they found this guy's purple heart. And we got a picture of it on our on our Facebook page. That's incredible. Yeah. And so y'all have actually had some pretty cool partnerships over the years with different organizations, large organizations actually can you speak to a little bit about that yeah so you know i talked about lake charles and being in the walmart parking lot well so i started thinking man that walmart that that garage center that would be nice to have available to us if we needed to put supplies in it and stuff so i said oh there's walmarts all around the country and even the world and they're within 30 minutes of anybody so it'd be cool to have a partnership with walmart for what we do and so i had an animated video created that showed what i wanted and that was basically a mash type setup in a Walmart parking lot. And, you know, it was a flyover and it flew over and it showed our, um, bought some tents, blue asset purchases, we bought some very large branded tents that shows where we're set up. Um, and no longer, you know, not in the sun anymore. Um, and I showed that flyover, showed our tents and what we were thinking. And I sent it to the Walmart foundation in an email, just kind of a random email. And um, they replied back and said, this is really interesting. Let's have a phone call. And so they gave us a $50,000 grant to set up our first um, Walmart-sponsored 
Safe Camp, which is our first program um, in uh, the Walmart parking lot in Mayfield, Kentucky, um, in um, 2021, which a tornado hit Mayfield um, in mid 2021, and um, or it was yeah 2021, and so we ran. That was our first partnership. So Walmart's given. There was a fifty thousand dollar grant to run that, and then um, when Hurricane Ian hit. Um, they called us and asked us to set up another one um, on uh, Fort Myers Beach in the Walmart there, which Walmart was closed and Fort Myers Beach was destroyed and the community needed supplies. And so we set up Safe Camp. And Safe Camp is, uh, we actually had two going for Ian. They called me to set that up after I already had one going. But it's an incredible experience. Um, you know, we, in the same, you know, what we did in Laura was people brought in all these supplies and gave them to us that's what they continue that's what we do we, we bring in lots of supplies we did this in Homa for Hurricane Ida too in the Walmart parking lot um, before I had actually requested like the partnership um, but they uh, we we, set, we bring in all these supplies we do it for as long as needed we did it for 18 days in Walmart parking lot in Homa um, and then we have volunteers loading trunks with all the supplies and the car line for for Homa was um, at some point it was like a mile long. It was Holy just nice. yeah. It was just it went forever and ever and ever. They wound through the parking lot, and then went out on the street, went to an ML, MLK Boulevard in Homa, and uh, we did that for 18 days, and then we did it again with a grant at two locations in um, Florida, um, and the one in Fort Myers that the original one we set up was incredible. We brought in over 10 million dollars worth of supplies that people loaded their trunks their trailers and their uh, trucks and dropped off to us and we had 18 wheeler deliveries mattress mac um, sent three truckloads um, mattress mac has gallery furniture in houston um, big big um disaster guy um and the astros did two fundraisers for us they did one for um mayfield and then they did another one for Hurricane Ian, and they sent an 18-wheeler full of supplies um, just before they won the World Series, actually. Um, and so we had uh, Macy's um, gave us a $50,000 grant and said, we want to do a fundraiser at our cash registers for you. And so doing that, um, that raised, a, I didn't know how much it raised. So I knew we had the $50,000 grant from Macy's, but then we uh, opened a check from them after they'd done their fundraiser for us at the registers where you could round up. You know, yeah, you could yeah. say, I want to round up my dollars and go to this um, organization. And that was a $98,000 check from Macy's. And so that means over 98,000 people donated because they could only round up to a dollar. Right. And it could be one cent, could be five cents. Yeah. So you don't know the actual number of people that made donations. Yeah. So we've had um, Airbnb um, gave us 60 Airbnb vouchers worth $5,000 each to put families into Airbnb. So our job was to connect with the family, vet them, make sure that they were right for that Airbnb and put them in it. And so our, this is what we're doing. Our goal is to find corporate sponsors to get behind what we do. And then we're turning that into goodwill for the community in countless ways. And we've had if I were to sit in count, we probably have had over 100 companies have gotten behind us and sponsored us at various points along the way. That's powerful. Yeah. And yeah. it doesn't matter the dollar value. You had 100 companies yep. get behind you and actually help towards disaster relief. Dollars and in-kind donations primarily. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Mostly in-kind donations. 
um, probably financial donations. And we've had we've had quite a few. Probably fifty has given us in like financial donations. Yeah, but I mean, both help, especially in times yeah. of disasters. Sometimes it's even easier, depending on the in kind. If somebody's bringing boxes of diapers or non-perishable foods, that's often better yeah. than having cash because then you have to send somebody to go get it and transport all that there. If they right. drop it off, it could be easier than actually having to go buy it from the stores yourself. We're feeling the need, you know, after yeah. these disasters, hurricanes primarily, when the whole entire parishes and counties are don't have power and the stores can't open we become the store. I mean, we provide all those things to the public through what we do, a distribution center. And these, this is an official thing. I mean, FEMA has decided that, you know, in the Stafford Act after Katrina, that they would create a pod, a point of distribution, and set it up in an official way in communities. And that's all we're kind of doing. We're just doing it without any kind of paperwork or legislation <laughs> to do it. We just, that's a good idea. Let's do yeah. that. You're just a nonprofit, private citizens making yeah. it happen. It's MASH. You know what the MASH, MASH is? Are you old enough to know what I'm not. Oh, I actually... I, you know the television I, show? I'm aware of the television show. I don't know the, the premise behind it. I know about their intro very well because I had a study for a communications course, but uh, not yeah. the actual show itself. Well, the show is a mobile army surgical hospital. It's on the front lines of battle, and I think it was maybe the Korean conflict or something that that show came out. It was one of the longest-running shows in TV history. And um, very popular in our day, Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. So I'm like, oh, let's create a MASH-type idea. And that's where Safe Camp comes from, Swift Action Force Emergency Camp. MASH was created by Michael DeBakey. Okay. The surgeon from Lake Charles. Oh, yeah. Right? Okay, yeah. Like, these it's are like the full little, circle, yeah. It's full circle. These are all the tips. This is where I was like, when I read that about Michael DeBakey and Lake Charles, I was like, well, we just did MASH in the parking lot. Okay, <laughs> let's come up with our own idea for MASH and pitch that to Walmart. And so okay. that's how that all developed. That's incredible, man. And, you know, the 10 months now, we only run Safe Camp, the MASH-type unit, when it's critical need. Once Walmart opens and all, we shut that down because we're not going to take the tax base away from the community. It's important. And take jobs away from people like by giving stuff away that they can go buy. But we continue to help through community caretaking. That's our second program. So community caretaking is literally taking care of the community. Like we go in and we help people in big ways and in small ways. It's a countless creative range of services that people just need help with. It brings emotional stability to people and prepares them for the journey ahead to have, you know, a volunteer group show up and put a reflector in your driveway when you're 86 and that reflector keeps you from backing into a ditch. And your husband put it there three years ago, but he died last year. Like, and it reminds you of him. So we we get in and we do those special things that make a big difference to the community to bring stability to that community in whatever way we can. And look, we just figure it out. I mean, we're not, there's no real playbook. It's just like, what needs to be done? Let's find a way to get it done. We operate from three core principles. Find a way to say yes. Like, if you can't do it, find somebody who can. Um, stay, um, lead with positivity. The, these disasters bring enormous negativity into a community. If we come in with drama and, you know, we've got a lot of different people living together at times, cohabiting, you know, like uh, uh, co just living together. You can, call, you can have human conflicts just in the back end of volunteer networks and things. We don't, we don't want that. We want you to deal with negative things in a positive way. It's going to happen. Um, and the third one is to under-promise and over-deliver. We don't go in and pretend like we're going to save the world. Like We just come in and do what we can. And um, those three core principles like, have led us to where we are. And every volunteer hears it. 
um, whether they're one day or they're with us forever. Like those are the three core things we operate by. I love that. So as we kind of start to wrap up the show, I was going to ask you what, well, one of the questions is what are the three lessons you learned along the way? But like those three core principles, unless you've got some lessons to offer, absolutely. But like those three core principles are powerful, significantly yeah. powerful. But I still will ask, what are three lessons you've kind of learned along the way? Yeah, I think the the first and the biggest lesson is that what I'm doing is inevitable, and I wish anybody success doing it. Um, I would. It's not. A, it's never a competition. It's always let's let's all get together and help. And if you have a better way to do it, let's go do it. You know, and I'll help you in whatever way I can. And so, I think, and the reason is the reason this is different is this technology. This is inevitable because of the nature of social media that brings people together that would otherwise wouldn't even know about these things. That's a lesson that I learned. Um, another is that I, you know, I have to have a strong team of people that um, make things happen. I can't do it all. Um, and any business owner is going to tell you that. And if they're successful in any means, they have really good people. Um, I think the book Good to Great. You know, the first thing is who's on the who's on the boat, who's on the bus, right? That's Absolutely. the most important thing. Great book. It's a great book. I read it once a year. My whole team's reading it right now. Um, and I think the third thing would be, um, you know, stay humble. Um, you know, we, we're doing some pretty cool things. Um, you know, I told you, I think offline, we were on Jeopardy. Yeah, know? that's right. And they called Sony Pictures, man. They said, hey, we need your, you to sign off on this agreement for us to use your logo on our show, Jeopardy. I'm like, is this a joke? Is this spam or something? I don't know. <laughs> Who's <laughs> your boss? <laughs> <laughs> exactly right, right. So, um, yeah, they showed our logo, and that's cool and all. But you know what? Um, ultimately, it's not about me, and it's not about this organization. Right. We're, we're only going to be here if we're really if we're really helping people in a big way. Then we're going to make a difference, and I think that's the most important thing is to just stay humble and bring as much value to the ecosystem as we can, and every volunteer is that. 100%. So what is something you did as a kid you wish you could still do today? Dang, I wish I could ride a bike and jump ramps. <laughs> I broke my right? arm doing that. Right? <laughs> yes. I didn't even have to hesitate because I think uh, about I that all the time. That's, yeah. now that you say that, like, yeah, that was the thing to do yeah. as, as a younger kid without a care in the world. You didn't care how your bike was going to land. You didn't care if you're going to, I have a, a very not so fun memory of going off a ramp and sliding in the gravel as soon as I hit the ground oh, yeah. and just tearing myself all up. But it was still, I still got back up the next day once I was better. Yep. You bounce back like that. That's the ultimate moment to realize that, you know, we think we're invincible. <laughs> Go yeah. ride a bike and try yeah. to jump around. Now you got to wear a helmet and pads <laughs> and like have armor on and all of that. Yeah, beforehand you're like, mom, dad, no, I'm not wearing it. I'm not wearing that, all that protection and whatnot that's not cool yeah and now you're like all right they make shin guards they make you know el arm guards elbow guard give me all the padding and <laughs> give I, me I was, everything i was riding my bike and i hit the top of that ramp and that's when my shoelace tied up just tight enough in the pedal that I, it stopped right at the top of the ramp and i went over the handlebars oh. and broke my arm i didn't know it was broken until later that night it was swollen up it swollen up like a basketball <laughs> and like we need to go to the emergency room so but yeah that, that would be one thing but there's so many others but um riding a bike and jumping ramps. That's so, a good one, though. It is a good one. I like it. Yeah. So what is something you like about Louisiana? Uh, the, the, um, I think the laissez-faire attitude of the people is something you don't find really anywhere else in the world and the pride of the people. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's a rare place. Um, I'm actually a Cajun. I know I don't talk like that much, but my last name is Godet. 
and Jean Godet came to the New World in 1603. So I'm a 13th generation American in some ways. And it's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool feeling to know that you have that heritage. And, um, you know, we have a lot of family pride in that. And, um, but, you know, I think Louisiana is a, is a great state. Um, I think as a, as a people, we don't really think on a global scale. Um, we kind of think about it in a backyard scale. <laughs> pretty much (laughs) yeah what's impacting us and our neighbor there's a lot of pluses to that there really is and you know we've taken this idea of the cajun to a whole new level we you know you can't go anywhere in the world and not find tabasco on a table and cajun on the menu you can go to paris and probably half the restaurants have cajun chicken or cajun something and it's not actually cajun but they just like using the term but um you know it's really it's it's such a dichotomy of good simple people that bring incredible value to the people around them um in a lot of ways it leaves us behind though too from a global perspective and business and um and i've always been you know i'm in the digital space i mean we have an nft collection for cajun navy really it's called bayou peeps okay and bayoupeeps.io and we have 1500 of them and they're all like a character is one character to tie um we actually have 12 characters that will release over time but you can buy an NFT, and I don't know if, you, if an NFT is like a collectible card, and they maintain value. It's under a, it's under the blockchain contract, and so like I live in the digital space. I love it. I think it's important. I would love to see Louisiana wrap its arms around that. And I feel like some of the core values of our culture could make us a major global player in it. We just have to figure it out as a state. I think so. We got a long way to go, but it's still a great place to live. Yeah, we just have to help each other one day at a time become a better whole unit as a state for sure very much so for the final question what can i do to help you wow this dude put this out let's get 20 million listeners to this or viewers to this <laughs> let's do it man yeah, i'm down <laughs> <laughs> well uh we'll put in the description a link to donate to y'all's organization and y'all's, sure. y'all's foundation it's uh, give.gocajunnavy.org Give.gocajunnavy.org. G-O, not G-E-A-U-X. <laughs> it's funny, you have to preface, preface that. I know. Well, it's like Here. Cajun. You would think it'd be Go as in, you know, the G-E-A-U-X that we always do for everything here in Louisiana. But no, it's yeah. the original G-O, Go. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Okay, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate your time and appreciate your willingness to share your story and really what you're doing for the community. It's making a significant impact and allowing others the ability to do so, whether it's time or monetary or in kind. I know every little bit that y'all get goes such a long way. It does. Um, every every dollar we raise brings $12 in value. That's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. It's well, because of in-kind donations and good volunteers like are listening to us today. That's perfect. Well, if y'all are y'all are listening or whatnot and you want to give, check the show notes, check the, uh, the website, whatnot. We're going to link up a way to allow you to contribute, whether it's volunteer or whether it's money, whatever you can. Um, check them out and give them a help. They're helping people all around the country. So, Rob, thank you so much for everything that you do. I really appreciate it. And thank you for your time today, man. Thanks, Patty. Great, great show. Absolutely. And thank you, everybody else, for listening or watching whatever platform you're consuming the show on. I really appreciate it. I know the guests do as well. We've had a great time here. Gorgeous weather at Building 5 in Baton Rouge. And take a little bit listen about the people that bring you the show each and every week, our proud partners in the community in the area. We've got a little bit more detail about them right now. Welcome to the brand new Falaya mobile app. We took all the same tech that's helped hundreds of people sell their homes themselves and packed it into an easy to use app for your phone. When you download the Falaya mobile app on either the Apple or Android app store, you'll immediately be able to see the power of this game-changing tool. 
From the seller's dashboard, you can navigate to all the information that you need. We intentionally separated everything into key groups, such as tasks to be completed, buyer leads for your listing, and contact information for everyone involved through closing. When you get an offer on your property, you can simply review and respond all within the app. No matter where you are in the world, you'll be able to monitor everything that's going on with your property from listed to sold. It's truly the power of Falaya in the palm of your hand. Download the app and see for yourself. Falaya, it's real estate reimagined. Thank you so very much to Building 5 for the, becoming the latest sponsor of the Patty G Show. We are going to be filming once a month at Building 5. We're going to post about it on our socials so you can come and visit with us. Building 5 is an excellent food establishment if you're into sharing boards and really getting a creative menu. Misty and Brumby have done an excellent job of creating an environment that's warm, welcoming, and inviting for every single occasion. Go on over to Building 5 in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and tell them that the Patty G Show sent you. Imagine taxiing on a plane looking toward the end of the runway. It seems so far away. It's even hard to see it. And that's what the concept of retirement probably felt like when you were in your 20s, 30s, and 40s. Way far in the distance, not visible, or even a concern. But as you turn 50, something happens. Retirement suddenly seems like something real, something not too far away. In your 50s, you are rolling down the runway. Retirement is getting closer and closer, faster and faster, weeks and months zipping by. But are you even ready for a successful takeoff to retirement? Fear not, there's still runway left, but the time is now. Time to make progress and time to get a plan. The Runway Decade will help you get organized, get energized, and give you the direction you need to take off to your desired retirement. The Runway Decade, building a pre-retirement flight plan in your 50s. Thank you to Mercedes-Benz of Baton Rouge for making this show possible. Nick Pentis is a past guest. We love having him on. Listening to him talk about the culture they have over at Mercedes-Benz of Baton Rouge is really an incredible thing to hear. How they treat not only their employees, but every customer that walks through the door. You are more than just a number to them. They're going to give you that white glove concierge service Every step of the way, they're going to make you feel like family and take what can be a stressful time in people's life, shopping for a car. They're going to make it so enjoyable and so pleasurable. You're going to want to go back there time and time again for every new vehicle. Thank you so very much for Mercedes-Benz of making this show possible. Thank you to our wonderful sponsor, Lake Men's Health Center with our Lady of the Lake Physicians Group. Guys, I know it's tough to get out and go to the doctor. I know it's challenging to find time in our busy days, but I promise you, signing up to be a part of this group with Dr. Curtis Chastain and Dr. Tyler Boudreaux, you won't regret it for several reasons, but most of those being the fact of the time it saves, where you're able to get in on the same day, get that appointment done, and spend that time you need to talk with them about what your health goals and concerns are, as well as ensuring that the financial investments you have, you will be able to live out and see those come to fruition. So if you're an investing guy, you know all about and planning for the future and investing in the future. There's no other more important thing to invest in than your health. Make sure you go check them out, our Lady of the Lake Physicians Group Men's Health Center, and tell them Patty G sent you. 
McClavey's Limited, a proud sponsor of the Patty G Show, has been serving the Baton Rouge area proudly for 40-plus years. Gentlemen and ladies, if you're shopping for your man, there is no other place in the Baton Rouge area to get your clothing, whether it's game day needs, everyday needs, business attire, formal attire, whatever you want. Go over there, see Frank and Ashley. It's a father-daughter duo. They do incredible things in their store. They will outfit you from as simply a shirt that you need for one evening or all the way to a full wardrobe overhaul. They're going to take care of you every step of the way, and be sure and let them know that Patty G Show sent you. Simple.